Hello. Here's a debate between a past president of the Landscape Institute, Merrick Denton Thompson, and a past vice president, Brody McAllister, who's standing to be a future president. They discuss how the landscape architecture profession should respond to climate change, and more generally, how the profession can expand its influence. You can watch the debate on the Landscape Architecture YouTube channel, and you can use its comment section to join in. Both speakers, I'm pleased to say, see a bright future for the landscape architecture profession. Hello, Merrick. Um, just continuing a previous conversation uh, about um, climate change, um, I just wanted to ask you a fairly obvious question of, are we as a profession the solution to the climate change problem? Well, I think as you, as you rightly said the other day when we talked about this, Brody, that um, this is an incredibly important moment in time. Um, you know, not only have we got the, the whole issue around climate uh, and changing weather patterns, which is the most immediate issue, uh, the whole issue around extinction of species and ecosystems, and uh, uh, the health and well-being of the, of the nation. And, and uh, you rightly said that, that um, the landscape profession really can transform the lives of people. I mean, we are instinctively, because of our training, we, we, we turn to the arts and the sciences almost uniquely um, in, in uh, resolving the issues uh, that society is facing today. So I think it's a very, very important moment in time. We, we sit at that wonderful interface, don't we? Of, uh, and you made this point very strongly between people and place, between people and natural systems. So yes, uh, I, I, I agree with what you say, that uh, we really have a very special responsibility to society today as a profession. Yes, and um, post-COVID and post-Brexit um, adds even more pressure, I think, to how fast we now act and the, the opportunity um, we seize, because I think we're now going to re-enter a, a new normal which might be the old normal and right across the board that that will affect uh, how we deal with um, climate um, so I think you know there's a lot to talk about but perhaps we could review a few examples across town country and the in-between um, Greenbelt um, so is that a good plan? I think it's an excellent idea yes um, and I think uh, also sort of implicit in the discussion, uh, how do landscape architects expand their work stream um, and influence, uh, not, not just for self-aggrandization, but, but to, to help the problems that I think, no matter how green we make cities, if they're soulless, dull, ugly places, people will still want to get on a jet and go to a foreign land, to somewhere that's more beautiful and exotic. So I think it's implicit upon us as designers and creators to lift the human spirit and create um, beautiful, soulful places, as well as contribute towards the technology of change. Um, so we all know the checklist of housing, water sensitive design, 
better transport, the need to avoid cars, not just design electric cars, but avoid certain types of transport altogether. Um, mixed use and the greater emphasis on mixed use, uh, including live work balance, which is changing as the high street will become more residential rather than office. We might get vertical farms um, so that we don't rely on transport of goods and minerals um, in and out of cities so much. Compact cities, I think, has come back onto the agenda rather than an urban sprawl, low density urban and suburban sprawl into greenfield land outside the city. Um, and business models, how businesses operate is going to have a great effect on the city of the future. Um, so what I, what I think is important to go on to in talking about the bigger picture countryside and the Greenbelt is the need for the profession to shift back to what it used to do, which is landscape planning landscape strategizing rather than just design and management although design and management are incredibly important and i see it as essential that there should be a private public sector partnership in order to achieve this and we need to reinvent the public sector as our gateway through to public land so i wondered what you thought about this idea that our, we need a shift in emphasis towards landscape planning and public private partnership I think, Brody, you're, you're making some really important points. And um, all too often, you know, we've tended to be very focused on design, but actually the policy framework where we're building the intelligent clients um, and reconnecting people. Um, so uh, I absolutely agree that we need to have policies. We need to have visionary aspirations for every town and, and every city. I think we ought to be also very conscious of the of the urban village um, in terms of how communities operate. And I love the point you make about being more um, enchanted by where you live and work rather than getting in a plane and going somewhere else. And really the, the way to empower that is, is through sort of having visions, perhaps a landscape master plan for for, for every urban village or every city or every town. Because I think the other point that we're struggling with here is that there are so many silos in, in agendas. Um, you know, you've got all those people who are very concerned about nature recovery. We've got obviously all those people who are, uh, are, are concerned with the health and well-being agenda. But we, we provide the framework for all of those things to be brought together in a coherent way. So. I believe that the landscape policy about the management of our towns and cities um, requires the uh, innovation um, and the imagination just as much as designing at street level uh, requires. So I absolutely agree with everything you've just said. Yes, and I, I think it will change um, the nature of our, our, the makeup of our profession. So we talk, within our institute about growth, but it, it's a little bit of an ambiguous phrase. I, I don't think there's a need per se for growth for the sake of growth, um, if that means standards get lowered. I mean, I think it's more a change of emphasis actually. And I think there are some things we do well that we should concentrate on. And there are some things 
we don't do that we should do. And there are other things that we should probably delegate um, to non-institutional bodies associated with us so that we can concentrate fully on this new agenda. And I do see the designers amongst us becoming more generalists and are, are rather than kind of cosmetic agents. Um, I see myself principally as a designer as the generalist who tries to pull it together with more attention to the scientists and the yeah. managers and the yeah. planners who are the experts who, who feed us. Um, uh, more, more voice, more prominence, bring, bring them back into the profession from the ages, and some of them have left. Um, we, you know, we need to entice, entice them back. Otherwise, I don't think we can manage the problem. And then the second part of it is about not accepting that we can't do it all. I think greater collaboration and joint venture um, with other professionals is absolutely uh, required to do what you said, breaking down those professional barriers or silos. Um, and so do you, do you see the issue with the profession as needing to grow numbers or, or as I said, changing the, the makeup of the profession? I think that um, my sort of observations uh, when I was president of what's going on is that A, we do not have enough landscape architects to meet society's needs. That is a real big issue. Secondly, I feel we ought to be making more of our uh, sciences within our the services we provide. So balancing the arts with the science, but very especially the social sciences, just as much as the biological sciences. Um, and more focus on um, repurposing landscapes uh, with a specific series of functions, interrelated functions in mind. Because if we are producing what people need, that becomes a must have. Um, and I, I'm really very keen on your ideas of repositioning the profession back into the center, being the rapporteur, being the driver of, uh, of, of policy and vision. So I think you're completely right in the point you've made. And I think I, I agree with you about the um, the, the issue of bringing in the social sciences and in particular my, my kind of passion is for the human psychology element because I, it relates to culture. If you don't understand the human psychology, you can't begin to persuade them on the science. Um, and I know that um, activists like Greta Thunberg find a problem with this, that people are not listening to the science. Uh, let alone acting on it. Um, and she has been told numerous times, it's because it's about the human psychology. Um, so I, I see working with human psychologists and understanding the human psyche ourselves is much more important. So therefore training, um, our training uh, comes into sharp focus. And that's why I personally believe our educate, higher education system has to go much higher up the agenda. and. They must be empowered to uh, to have have a job role beyond mere education about partnering on apprenticeships, training, pathway to chartership, um, as they are in our 
in other countries. And then that lifelong training must become affordable and sort of multifaceted. Do you, do you see the, the need for greater um, and different kind of training within our profession? I certainly do. I, I feel that um, uh, the, 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 that point about the, the sciences, um, we, we've got to have um, greater training both in the biological and, and social sciences, because if we're going to produce fit for purpose, um, functional landscapes, we're going to really have to get underneath what people need. I mean, let's just take the, the example of, of children. Um, look at the state of childhood today in this country. It is quite shocking. Um, I mean, look at, look at London. For over 45% of, of children in London, their only time outside is in the, in the playground at school. 45% a very high proportion that is that's shocking and yet we know don't we that child development depends upon experiential learning upon all aspects of play we've abandoned the idea that the, the whole play spectrum has got to be uh, got to be there for children to 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 uh, develop in, in you know their full um, opportunities for, for young people now, yes. we as a profession, we can do that. And, and Adam White is a very good example of that. He spends a lot of his time very focused, doesn't he, on expanding opportunities for, for children. I believe the landscape profession has, can do more for the state of childhood than any other profession in this yes. country. Yes, I agree. And we hear on the news that um, during COVID, we've, we've almost... Uh, impeded a new generation of extremely young people who've lost language skills because yes. they haven't been in the classroom. So the obvious answer is that, well, you need to teach more out of the classroom, more yes. than you ever did, um, yes. because that was always the safe environment, regardless of our climate. Um, and, then, and then you will be future-proofed. Um, and that's where we come to the fore again. But the other thing I'd like to emphasize is that what I'm acutely aware of, having been involved in higher education myself, is that the young generation coming through, more than any other, I think, um, wants self-expression. Um, they're, not, they're not prepared to conform anymore. Uh, they quite like to be activists as well, um, if we allow them, if we train them to be. And part of that self-expression is artistic and creative, and the other is about having a voice and being listened to. Um, so I think we need to move to a more democratic uh, structure where everyone feels that voice. And I think if they do, uh, we'll become the exciting profession to join. So I look at the associates now, what used to be called the licentiates, um, and I think they're, what, they're sitting there waiting and thinking, is, all, is the only thing to the profession just looking towards our pathway to chartership, or, or is there more? And I think the more has to be that they view it as an extremely exciting um, you know, future career, uh, very secure and cutting edge. Um, and that, as you correctly said, that starts with childhood. That starts with imbuing with them with these values at the earliest possible age. Um, yeah. So 
we both agree on that. But moving moving towards uh, the countryside, uh, we'll come back to the cell wall in a minute, which um, is the green belt. Um, I, I implied earlier, and I, I think you agree, but I'll come to you on it, that there, there is a difference, but not so much difference as we're led to believe between the countryside and the city. We're led to believe they're almost different spheres of expertise um, and different teams of people should be involved. And it has become the greatest divide um, and, and always has. And in a way, I, I sort of agree with keeping cities compact and not dribbling into the countryside and have distinction between countryside and city. But I think the best way of achieving that is not to treat them differently, but to, to actually treat it as one big organism. Um, so in that respect, I think the, the greatest growth other than as being more advocates for landscape planning and strategy is growing our area of work into the countryside and not being a profession so obsessed with the city because it is the countryside that can make or break uh, the future of the city. And it is the global picture of agriculture uh, and forestry or deforestation that will make or break us, no matter how great we are as a nation at reducing carbon, um, we'll, we'll be broken by the national picture of the countryside. Um, so, I think we, we need strategies for the countryside and strategy number one is this national carbon sink plan. The other strategy, which I'll, I'll talk to you about in a second is, because I know you're keen on, is food. Um, we import too much food. Um, the other strategy is to do with forestry and the, and the fact that it takes 30 years to minimum to develop a mature forest. And so just planting new trees isn't the answer. It's allowing them and managing them to 30 plus years and, and just leaving them as areas of tranquility that is the important thing. And then overlaying that with new recreation, new perceptions of land access, which is a real problem for us as the British, because we're still, you know, we're still bound by aristocratic land access. Um, and the policy and plans that go with that. Um, so personally, I think the way to manage that is through devolvement to more regional partnerships. So I wondered what you thought about these new regional partnerships and also your view of wilderness versus food production. I think the, uh, the issue about regions, first of all, is that what the landscape profession has actually done in the 80s, and it was taken up nationally uh, by um, the Countryside Agency in English Nature, and now Natural England, is to actually look at the countryside and map character. And the, the natural character map of, of England is driven by our profession. And what it does is to get rid of all the bureaucratic boundaries. So counties or districts or regions and breaks it down to places that are have responded in the same way. So there's a very good business case for saying, let's uh, focus intervention and policy at a landscape scale, at the 159 national character areas 
each are quite distinctive and each will respond in the same way if you intervene in those areas. So that's the first thing. It's then they're not what we're, we're getting away from administrative boundaries and and looking very closely at landscape boundaries. Then the issue about food uh, the, the bit and, and, and wilderness and rewilding. Um, at the heart of it is a, um, is, a, is a difference of opinion. Are we going to land spare or are we going to land share? And my view is our profession is brilliant at the land sharing. In other words, targeting multifunctional outcomes. And Dieter Helm, when he started pushing natural capital, um, he was basically observing that national policy has ignored the foundations of life, the elements of life, you know, clean air. Uh, I've now got a clock ticking, so we'll just come back and wait a second. Um, a rather big Ben, a, a, a little Ben. A little Ben, yeah. Um, so, so Dieter Helm, has helped us as a profession because he has um, he has focused attention on the value of our tools, the tools that we instinctively use as a profession every day: water, air, soil. You know the elements of life, and he is trying to give and give a a cash value. He's not there yet, by the way, but the point is that um, we we as a profession, are really good um, at producing multifunctional outcomes. And so food is one of the products of our land, but also clean water and clean air and restored um, microbial health of our soils um, and um, restored uh, wildlife and, and nature recovery. We can do that stuff. So you're quite right. Um, there's a new opportunity for the profession and our skills and and uh, our creativity is needed across the whole of our rural landscapes as well as our cities. So with um, with a sort of refocus on our expertise in um, landscape planning, it's quite a creative way of uh, evolving this strategy. I think um, we, we mustn't forget that within that, our, our role has always been and should be to create beautiful and sustainable communities and places, including lovely parks. But you're not gonna get that unless we have the landscape inf infrastructure. And to a certain extent, uh, probably for another debate, that needs to be statutory. Um, in the same way as town planning is statutory, the, the need for each local authority at county and district level to have Land, landscape infrastructure um, staff as a, a is absolutely ne necessary by law, not not by desire. Um, which leads me um, to the next the next part, which is the the cell wall of the of the organism, the the green belt. Now, the, I see this as a sort of bit of a sticky problem because uh, a lot of our profession. Uh, gain their work currently through housing. And there's a pressure on the Greenbelt for expanded housing, as well as on 
um, countryside villages to expand into greenfield land because they see uh, former agricultural land as redundant. Um, well, perhaps it is, but that isn't part of a strategy for it to be. There isn't a plan that says it's redundant. It's just ad hoc that it becomes redundant. So there's the one view that a green belt is underutilized land and the notion of a belt to tighten the city is too yesterday and that we should use the green belt um, to expand housing into. But don't worry, folks, we're going to have um, green infrastructure that's going to permeate it and make it all lovely and healthy and green. What's your what's your view of both sides of the argument? Well, the, the green belt, the, the reasons for green belt have not gone away. That's the prevention of the coalescence of settlements. What we don't want to see is an, an amorphous mass where we we lose that distinct sense of place as a profession. So I think the Greenbelt concept is fine. It was, of course, deployed um, differently across the whole country. And there were uh, county councils who were in charge of structure planning um, that chose not to use Greenbelt at all. So my own county in Hampshire, for example, they decided to have strategic gaps which would prevent the coalescence of, of settlements. Um, so I think that uh, um, we mustn't think about um, the, the loss of agricultural land um, and therefore find something new. Actually, reconnecting people with food growing is, is really part of what we do. And there's a great thirst now for communities to be more involved in land. Uh, so I think that uh, the green belt needs to be reviewed as a legislation. Um, uh, I think it ought to have been um, applied consistently across the country, and I think there is a need for new green belt um, um, in 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 parts of country that never used it before. But I also believe passionately in the multifunctional outcomes of green belt. So taking that point about children, taking that point about forests, you know, actually, you could combine the two, you could really transform the green belt, keep that settlement, but also um, uh, secure some of the, 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 the really fascinating stand types that were adopted, coppice woodland, for example, which is very much a community uh, uh, activity, could be a, a community activity. So um, uh, uh, you're right, you started by saying that um, we mustn't see things separately between town and country. And actually the green belt is the glue that draws these, these two things together. And we ought to have ambitions for our green belt. We ought to have management plans for our green belt to repurpose them to meet society's new agenda. Yes. And, you know, personally speaking, having worked um, as a landscape planner within um, London's green belts uh, in, in Kent, I'm aware of the criticism that some green belt is very underused. Uh, it's just a big zone for the yeah. electric pylons to go through and yeah. little horsey fields uh, or areas for fly tipping. So I'm a great advocate that it, it should be not only distinct um, green belts and not, and not become amorphous, uh, an amorphous sort of zone, 
um, but be bet better used. Uh, the analogy being it's the permeable cell wall um, between the outer organism and its constituent parts. Um, and in that respect, I agree with you, there are different ways of looking at it. Sometimes the green belt isn't necessary. You can go to the German idea of the, the green wedges. You know, that's our green infrastructure. Um, but at the, at the, the bottom line is there is a need for us or some other professional collaborative to, to grasp the idea of the green belt um, and for there to be a greater plan not, not generically, but in, in every city and town, uh, individualistically. Um, now, I, I see that not just as an issue of having one policy issued by our institute that generically covers it all, but as, as a growth area, because it is individual to each district or city. Um, how, how, how they tackle it um, to come up with the best solution whilst also not forgetting the single purpose of a green belt is to restrict urban sprawl um, to keep the cities compact because after all in Europe we are urban sprawl equals the size of Luxembourg every 10 years um, a, a little fact we seem to forget um, so in in kind of concluding um, there are other peripheral issues that we've 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 touched on that aren't just about country and and town. We've touched on um, education and training, um, and the need for us to to carry on thinking about that partnership. Also, I think particularly with post COVID, what's come into spotlight is office practice, um, and in in particular. Uh, I think there's an issue between large and medium scale practices and small offices. We seem to have got more small practices and I think they're all thinking, how can we level the playing field? How can we be important and influential players as much as the larger practices, which are very good and full of extremely talented people. And I, I personally, I think that the answer is that all, all models are valid, even if people want a traditional office model, but there is a new approach that needs to be emphasized that will benefit the small practices and those wanting to form them in that they can now more than ever level up by joint venture practices and collaboration rather than um, the need for large overheads. Um, because after all, they can work flexibly from home. What's your experience of sort of office practice in the public sector? Well, I, th I think the, you've raised another very, very important point, of course, because over the last 20 years, we've hemorrhaged our profession from the public sector. Um, and so there is a desperate need uh, locally, and that's why I really like the point you're making, um, for the profession to connect with their local planning authorities um, and, and start a conversation, which would then make the local authorities if they if, if they joined up in some way um, uh, more competent than they are now because we have very few of our profession anywhere in local government so you're getting local plans for example being prepared uh, without the profession 
Um, and so how are we going to um, move this multifunctional um, landscape infrastructure point that you've made if we hadn't got anybody in the public sector uh, acting as an intelligent client in the commissioning of the of the private sector. So I think there's some opportunities here uh, for individual practices to have a more vibrant relationship with uh, with local administrations. Now I know that puts pressure uh, on local officers because everybody is so busy, but we've got to crack the mold somehow. We've got to we've got to create a, a, a better opportunity for the profession to influence land use planning policy. And I, I think, um, but personally, I think the answer is just as we've been talking about not seeing city and countryside as separate things, I think we need to stop thinking of private practice and public sector practice as yeah. two distinct separate entities where in hard times you have to delete the public sector in order for the private to, this is a dichotomy that's unnatural. Um, and personally, I see one way of tackling it is uh, using new technology that's yeah. coming on board, uh, more flexible working and more private sector, public sector partnership, even people working for both um, to relieve the burden on the public sector um, and to, to get the job done. Um, the job being to form a seamless gateway into public access to public land and power over it uh, in collaboration with, uh, with other um, uh, practices and uh, disciplines. Um, so we've also mentioned uh, the potential statutory need. Um, as a town planner, uh, originally trained as a town planner, I <laughs> rather comically, I used to ask um, senior town planners as I was sort of coming up through the ranks, um, why do we need town planning? Uh, think rather cheekily. And the answer would always be, um, we have to have it. It's statutory. Um, uh, really uh, avoiding the question, but, but making the point that once you've proven you're necessary, you don't need to waste all your time arguing that you're necessary anymore. You just do it. Um, and then the, the only question remaining is, are you doing a good job? And the answer is probably not. Uh, things could be much better um, right across the board. And that's, we can make it better by making it more landscape led um, rather than what's happened is town planning has shrunk into being district led, a, a, approving inevitable development plans instead of strategic, uh, the national, regional and sub-regional level. Um, so I, I think if we do that, we will entice the next generation, don't you think? I totally agree. Absolutely agree with you. I, Brilliant. I think they, uh, they won't start in landscape and end up in architecture. It'll be the other way around. Or you will get this crossbreed of people who step across all the professional borders because after all that's what our profession used to be the leaders and the thought provokers in our profession were often dual qualified originally and because um, we've we've now gone into professional silos again it's preventing that 
and I think need, we need to open that up. And I know that some universities are, like Sheffield are very good at running those joint courses um, to, to move it forward. So I think we need more of that at the university um, level. We need to empower them to be the theorists of the future and for landscape lecturers not to be stuck in a rut, the teaching rut, but be allowed to do research as other uh, disciplines at universities do. So we have more professors. Um, so there's a lot to expand on, I think, uh, for our profession, uh, but we, streamlining and delegation along the way. If we are, I think, to readdress our identity as a profession, because um, and this was going to be my next question, we seem to have fallen into the trap of being halfway in between either an environmental charity or a design-led uh, profession. So that when I've ever spoken to schools on careers day, they're confused because if they were interested in environment, they would probably join an environmental lobby group like Greenpeace. If they were interested in design, they might become product designers or architects. So where are, where are we? Are, are we in between or are we, the, are we the group that joins the whole thing up? I, I think that um, for, for me, going back to your question, that child, if that child wants to play a role, they need to join the landscape profession because uh, we are actually going to be doing something about it. Uh, uh, we're not just a campaigning organization. We have the, the, the skills, the, the, the science behind us and the, and the arts, the innovation, the problem solving uh, to actually do something about it. And you were talking about statutory obligations. I think that um, if uh, climate change goes uh, as far as I think it'll have to go, becoming a statutory function, we have a marvelous opportunity because uh, we really understand the way that land is managed and uh, repurposing land. Um, we, we manipulate climate all the time instinctively. We're qualified to do that, and yet we never tell anybody about it. So I think that uh, that's the answer, that uh, we need to draw in the geographers. We need to draw in those people who want to, to be campaigning and show that actually we're doing something about it and we're really the only profession that can draw all these threads together and, and reposition uh, the world. Yes, and, and I, I would add to that, um, kind of thinking empathetically from a younger generation's point of view, that they want to know there's a little bit of excitement uh, yeah. to be had. They, we do, I, I totally agree with your um, summary on it, but I think they want to know that we're not just a global safe pair of hands, like a, a large accounting group. We're, and, and that I, I don't think that's how we should define professional as a safe pair of hands. We should define professional as we're the thought leaders, we're the provokers, we're the experimenters uh, who've, who've got this vision that it needs to be continually redefined by um, collaboration. And how exciting is that? Um, we're not just green engineers. Um, but in order to do that, um, I don't know what you think, but 
my kind of parting thought is that we need to be much more outward facing. We need to kind of turn the jumper inside out, even if it's a bit uncomfortable for a while, to just see how it um, feels. And I mean conceptually and in detail at every level. What, what's your feeling on that? Because I know we keep, everyone keeps saying, oh, face outwards, but is, what's your interpretation of outward facing? I think my, my um, uh, challenge, I think the challenge we all have in, is how can we be given the existing framework? And one of the most obvious ways is to push for every community to have a, a design panel, uh, because that is a soft way of the profession um, spreading the word through demonstrating to local communities the validity um, of the skills that we bring. That might provide a framework for the profession to do, with, to do as you say, to be outward facing, to be engaging, to be collaborative, um, to really empower people. Because that's the point, isn't it? It is about how do we get, how do we transform places? Well, yes, of course we do that through money, but we can also do that through effort um, um, and, and physical interaction. So uh, we need to work as a profession um, to demonstrate best practice and to empower people to take action and make decisions. Yeah, and um, I, I, I agree with that. Um, but I would also add that um, for me, outward facing implies this old chestnut of we as a profession keep saying well our number one priority that we should spend most time and money on is promotion and whilst i totally agree with that i've i've got a feeling that promotion engenders the image of we need to be a marketing profession a self-marketing profession mm -hmm. my view of marketing is it's a one great big black hole that you can tip millions of pounds into every second and it may not make no difference if it's not targeted properly. And what is better than marketing and, and is just natural self-promotion is getting ourselves into a position where we demonstrate uh, what we can do. We, we do it rather than talk about it. And we talk about it to the unconverted and don't preach um, to us, make the mistake of preaching to ourselves. Because I think there's a difference between training and preaching to ourselves. Um, so my view, without going into huge detail of uh, which complements your view of what outward facing means, is that, or, for example, our publications have to face outward, just like a geographer's National Geographic faces outward to a million readers, um, and all the governance, our governance is all about streamlining the process um, so that it, to facilitate landscape architects facing outward all the time and, uh, it, and seeking intelligent clients that they can kind of gently educate uh, to be clients of the future who don't always put profit and money first, but have a new view that there's value in an idea or an ideal. And in this way, I think we, without being economists, we can gently influence the future of um, 
economics as the principal driver of uh, world societies. Um, and I, uh, personally, I'm, I'm involved as co-editor of um, the landscape ma magazine, Landscape Matters. And that's my kind of little way of trying to demonstrate how we can have complementary ways of uh, communicating. But have you any other views on how we, we can be more outwardly facing um, as individuals? Uh, I think as individuals, do we do enough in terms of our sort of charitable, personal giving? Um, I've tended now, whenever I'm approached uh, uh, with, a, with a hat asking for money, I tend to say, no, actually, I don't give money. I actually give my time. Um, and I'm wondering whether we could do more as a profession to say, let me give you know, 5% of my time uh, to help or empower local communities or to help the local school. I mean, every school is desperately in need of our profession, every school. And there's a school just around the corner from everybody. So I'm just thinking about, you know, uh, what, are, what are the portals um, to society whereby perhaps we could be a bit more uh, influential, but meet their needs. And I think that that percentage of giving, of personal giving, to empower and transform places might be something we could do more of. Yes, I, I agree. And in a way that um, dovetails into the idea that perhaps we need to be more selective about what, what we can realistically achieve. Yes. And if we over-centralize and over-rely, um, uh, internationally on governments to solve our problems rather than individually, um, then we might make the mistake of doing that ourselves as individual professions. But by, um, by decentralizing um, to, the, to the nations and individuals and the branches and the regions, I think we, we put a more realistic emphasis on what we can do individually and that, that empowers us and then the profession merely backs us up and f facilitates us. And I think some of the kind of volunteer actions you were talking about could be very beneficial, not just to creating a better society, but actually to, to grow us as a profession within that at, at kind of grassroots. Um, so on that note, there's, there's a lot of future debate uh, to be had, um, a lot of area to expand in, um, in a series of further talks. But thank you very much for your time so far, Merrick. Bye -bye. Well, Brody, I, I'm really delighted. And I, 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 I think the world of your approach to this uh, issue. Thank you very much, Merrick, for your time.